spoke all night. He lurked in the shadows, waiting and hoping she wouldn't take a different room. This was her usual room. He knew that. He knew her. Ghost of Me, the new book by Amanda Steele, can be found at Amazon, Kobo, Waterstones, and many, many other places. Hi guys, it's Andy N. Thanks today for downloading or streaming yet another episode of Spoken Label. As you may or may not be aware, Spoken Label was started in the beginning of 2006, and currently we have well over 150 sessions recorded and sent. Although you can find it on various networks, the full archive is available for streaming and downloading at Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com. It is a free download or free stream in there. But obviously, if you feel like chucking me a few pennies that way, it'd be eternally grateful to help me keep this podcast going and keep improving my equipment, etc. Enjoy. Speak to you soon. Bye bye. Spoken label. Hi guys, Andy N. Spoken label. Back in the house. Now, of course, I'm a bit different today because this is going to be a session. There's going to be two parts to this. And the second one will probably happen in July when Comics Unity is probably back in the house with my friend Michael. And we're going to have a chat to this person in question because she's an artist and writer and graphic novels just come out. So we're going to have a chat to her at a later date to talk on more about the, the graphic side of it. And also her um, co-host and love of Jeff, Jeff Lemaire. So we're coming to that another day. But I've got Lucy Sullivan with me today. So Lucy, you want to introduce yourself to everyone so who you are and where you come from, and what led you on the journey to being what you are now. I'm Lucy Sullivan. I am based in London, which I was born and bred in, but went, I've been around the world, I've done some other places as well. And I think I'm primarily, I would say, yeah, I'm an author artist, because I've done my graphic novel lately, but I also make zines, and I trained originally as an animator uh, on my degree, so, bit of everything really um but yeah i'd call myself a, an author artist <laughs> <laughs> yeah and when i was reading up on you i noticed that obviously when barty which we're talking about obviously prime today um your first the idea came to fruition at all the beginning of it you were working in an animation studio weren't you at that time so yeah so yeah. Tell, tell us about your experience in an animation studio first of all so, well, originally, um, when I graduated, I was part of an animation collective. So I've already always had a quite a, um, my work's quite dark. I've always had quite a spooky, kind of intense way of drawing. And um, animation is still very focused on cute. It hasn't really ever progressed that far, even with kind of Ghibli and some of the more adult, it's still, there's still a cuteness to it. And uh, I just can't draw cute. So... I was part of a collective with a really amazing artist, Matt Latchford, and a friend of ours who animated with us as well, Lucy Izzard, who's still an animation director. She's at um, Ardman down in Bristol. But um, yeah, we were a collective and we made some music videos and uh, got really stung by the animation industry. We were paid really badly and we worked really hard. So I we sort of stepped away from directing our own stuff. And then a friend of mine was a producer at Sherbet in London. So they're an animation studio. And I got brought in to work with a director called Tony Comley. So Tony does basically, have you ever seen 500? If you can imagine that, 
where oh, yes. it's like live action and then animated effects and backgrounds and stuff. So Tony does something kind of along those lines where he does kind of documentary work and he would film the actors and then you draw in all the backgrounds and the effects over the top. So I was drawing really? all the backgrounds. So I would draw the inside of a van or crystal ashtrays. <laughs> you know, <laughs> amazing one on um, where we worked on the animated sections for a documentary about the Pink Panther um, jewellery heist gang. So they're like a worldwide oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, heist gang. Yeah. So um, there was a Savannah, I think she's called Savannah Miller. Uh, she's the director and she did all the documentary stuff and there's like actual footage. And then when they'd imagine what the um, lives of the jewellery heist gang were like, it would be these animated kind of live action sections. So I did all the backgrounds and stuff on that. So it was really really fascinating kind of work and it was really well paid but it was creatively just bereft like because it wasn't my work so I just got no kind of um creative satisfaction out of it it was just you know like really factory line kind of work and I just didn't didn't enjoy it at all so yeah I see I see again that because like it's when you're doing those sort of things it's like you're in like the factory aren't you when you, you want to be your own it's almost like a I've yeah. said like is I really I don't watch television very much is because I'd rather be creating my own adventures rather than being dictated what you have to watch or yeah I think that's yeah. what applies to you there doesn't it really so yeah I and I and I really like the director I work with uh, Tony's great guy and it was a really interesting project but it's just you're drawing to someone else's standards so where he would say oh no that's great I think I'd have spent another three hours on that but he was happy with it. So I had to just move on to the next thing. And it was all sort of timelines and deadlines and just not, I don't know, just not creative, creatively satisfying. And, you know, I think a lot of us were all slightly kind of egocentric and think I could yeah. do a better job. <laughs> you know? oh, I'm, like that. I'm like that. I'm a writing sometimes. Like it's because I, yeah. I did a degree in it. Every time I'm reading up with poetry, I've got to take a step backwards sometimes or writing any form. So I can look at it and think, why have you done that? Why have you done that? Why have you done that? Yeah. And you're the same with your yeah. animation, aren't you? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted, you know, I think ultimately in my head, I'm a lead animator or director and I just don't have the kind of style that worked for animation, unfortunately. So yeah. all the time, <laughs> it's hand-drawn that I did. So it's really time-consuming and just a yeah. thing to do. Now, obviously, um, we're here today to talk about barking, aren't we? Which is, which is your debut graphical novel. Now, yeah. now I know a bit about this, boy, so I think it's best coming from yourself anyway. I know the process has been going on for quite some time, hasn't it? So tell people, obviously, about the story, where it came from. I know it's in relation to the fortune of passing your father, wasn't it, originally? That period of yeah. influence on it. Yeah, so originally, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I sort of had enough of London. and My mum was from New Zealand, so I thought... I do the whole find myself as a person by going, discovering something of my roots. So I was really into snowboarding and rock climbing and stuff. And I traveled a bit around France with a friend. And I just thought we'd gone to New Zealand, I think when I was about 17 and had this amazing kind of family trip from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South Island. And we'd gone through a town called Queenstown, which is where bungee jumping comes from. And what was it? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So AJ Hackett, who invented bungee jumping, did so in Queenstown. 
So it's um, like extreme sports capital, you know, it's everything is there. And uh, yeah, I went there at 17 and thought, I'm coming back here. This place is amazing. So I did. So I went back in my 20s and was living there uh, when I got, you know, the worst phone call you could ever get. So my dad had um, a brain aneurysm. It turned out it was a birth defect and no one knew about it. But he was 54. He was super healthy and a real kind of larger than life character. And then next thing you know, he's suddenly dead and I've got to fly home and figure out everything. And I think the trouble for me was I'd left London to leave some quite complicated friendships and relationships and to try and sort of start afresh. And then having to come back to the same people in that circumstance was just really, really hard. And I just didn't cope really. And I guess it was about, people always think it's the initial grief. And although I think that's where a lot of the trauma came from, it was more about sort of a year, year and a half down the line where it became quite apparent that I really wasn't coping and I was in a really dark place. So I had, you know, the worst night out of my life. which I didn't remember at all. And then I had about a couple of days later, I went into work and one of our bouncers asked me about that night. And he said, you know, how was your night? You know, what do you remember? And I was like, I normally remember everything. I can't remember anything about that night. And he said, right, so let me tell you what happened. And he took me through some of the things I did, which were really dangerous and really stupid. And I was really angry and really drunk at the time. And I didn't remember any of it. And he just said, look, you've got an anger problem. You've got to go and talk to someone, you know, you need help and this is going to get really bad otherwise. And at that point he had been in prison twice for GBH. So it was kind of a big wake up call that someone whose anger had put them into prison was telling me I had an anger problem. You know, I really had to get it sorted out. So I did, I was lucky enough that because I was working, I went through um, private, uh care i went to a psychotherapist and i did uh cbt i asked not to be on medication and just i wanted to find a way of living with it and he's i got uh, diagnosed with depression and anxiety so it's sort of i guess barking is sort of born from that experience but also from coming to terms with it and then i after that i did a degree in Uh, illustration and animation and whilst I was on my degree a friend was sectioned after I graduated another friend was sectioned and I was watching you know people go through what I went through but then being put in the hands of a kind of umbrella health system and I, I guess it just kept building on that I kept seeing the same stigma the same problems and people you know getting treated so badly when they're just really vulnerable And uh, yeah, so I wanted to do a story that spoke about that, essentially about what it's like to have that moment of crisis and how it feels for that person from their perspective. So that we can sort of open up a conversation a bit more around mental health clearly. And obviously when I started it, it was 10 years ago. Yeah, that's what amazed me when I heard you say from your mutual source, it took 10 years and I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, from fruition, because I, I was working at the animation studio and teaching life drawing. And one of my students on the life drawing class was a really famous graphic novelist called Nick Badzis. And um, 
we became really good friends with sort of mutual love of comics. And uh, I knew a lot of the work Nick had done. And I just said to him, you know, how do you, how do you make comics? How do you, you know, I love comics. I've read them my whole life. How do you do it? And he's like, you just got to get on, just do it. Tell your story. You've got a story to tell, just tell it. And um, my partner at that time, I was quite depressed because I wasn't enjoying the animation work. And my partner suggested that I make it about the depression to try and work my way out of the depression by drawing it. Because for me, yeah. drawing has always helped me to manage my mental health. It's been really... Yeah. Um, you can feel with it, there's a journey in that book. It's not... I think the narrative is quite interesting because it's very, very fragmented and I think it's on, as clearly on purpose. Yeah. It's like, I think, because I've gone for mental health trouble myself when I was younger, and you're not thinking an A to B line. And the book itself, think it works well because it goes all over timelines. And yes. you have to, I mean, it took me three, three reads to get the grips around it properly. And that, that's, that's what I like about things like that sometimes. It's just not obvious at all. Yeah. It, is, it is a bit of a, it's a bit of a wild narrative, but it, for that reason, I wanted to give the idea that you, when you're in that kind of headspace, your concept of time or action or influence is completely uh, fluid you, it's, you're just sort of running on your emotions and it's really hard to be able to say oh this happened then and then and that happened there's not that kind of collective um, normal way of seeing the world I think that, that when you're in a safe mental space you can see the world and see how one thing affects the other but I think when you're in that emotional kind of turmoil it's really impossible to understand what's happening around you when we do our comics unit chat, obviously I'll be asking you a lot of questions about the graphics and the choice and several parts on it. But in relation to storyboarding, from a writer perspective, had it did it change much over the years, did you find? Or did you always have that sort of rough idea from the beginning where you wanted to go? No, it changed a lot, actually. Um, I think I always knew the start and the end point. I knew how yeah. it would open and how it would end. But um, what I wanted to focus on changed quite drastically, especially because the book was crowdfunded. So over about kind of two, year, two years of crowdfunding, I was going out and doing talks and meeting people and going to different uh, places. And I think it was more in meeting people and them talking to me about their experiences that it really shone a light on what I definitely wanted to talk about and what I thought was important because it's such a big topic. It's so impossible yeah. to know. Massive. It's, um, you know, I, I've never seen a book like this. I've, and I've read plenty of novels talking about fragment mental health. I've seen films as well. But this is just something really different, this book. Did you find that you're talking about it? Yeah, I, it was really interesting. I think what was interesting was that most people, if they do kind of, uh, sort of autobio or something along those lines they associate it with a certain type of artwork so uh, they tend to be quite naively drawn books or you know they're more about the kind of the, the honesty of the story rather than the artwork and I think for me it was making sure because I knew how to draw and I knew my artwork would be fine it was making sure that the, the, the narrative and the dialogue really lived up to what I wanted to say and the weight of the topic and yeah so it, it changed it changed with meeting people and them telling me their stories and then I think through the process of actually writing it because that was first so I wrote uh, I wrote it in a really weird way <laughs> having read <laughs> loads of 
uh, comic scripts and just thinking I, I, I wouldn't be able to draw that if I wrote a you know person walks into the room panel one looks up panel two this happens I couldn't draw it fluidly if I wrote it like that so what I did was read a load of film scripts and I ended up writing ah. it more like that yeah. so it's yeah, more like that, that's what I've dialogue yeah so I sort of had um I had kind of bullet points for each chapter. I knew it was going to be 10 chapters. And I knew I wanted a kind of like intro into how she got where she was at. And then about the kind of system of the hospital and the different kind of aspects. So I had to break it down and go, right, especially once I'd made the first three chapters and they were her intro, then it was like, right, you've got seven chapters. <laughs> like, what are they going to be about? And I had to really go through all of the topics and I managed to find that there was basically a character in the hospital that I could use to go along with um, an experience or something specifically about mental health or perceptions of it or the care that I wanted to really bring up in the discussion so it was really tricky to kind of bring that down but once I've got the kind of bullet points per chapter then it became much easier and then it was just like writing each chapter as kind of a mini kind of comic or a mini film that I could get the base down of what action was going to happen what dialogue and then I'd thumbnail it and then I'd write a bit more and then I'd sketch it out and normally wow. between that it would develop. Yeah now I did read somewhere else that um, the book itself was it all hand-drawn it wasn't done on the computer at all was it? No it's all hand-drawn it's drawn with biro and in fact I did a lesson today I mean you can see some on my board which I appreciate your listeners can't see but with carbon typewriter sheets so um it's a technique i learned at uh, university which is called blind drawing where you learn to look at a thing and draw it without looking at the paper so you get your hand-eye coordination going and it really worked for me as a technique so i've used it to draw the environments in barking so there's like shots by the thames i went out onto the thames and drew on site with this carbon paper and stuff perfect in and it just gave it some a sense of reality that i don't yeah. think i could have got. and no doubt if it started raining it's under your coat and your random basically oh, oh yeah yeah i'd have i mean this is you know pre-lockdown obviously and i'd have like a ream of tourists around me wanting to see what i'm drawing and all they can <laughs> see is the black paper and i couldn't lift it up because i'd lose my space where i was <laughs> it was just yeah, a really interesting way but yeah it's all biro and it's all done on animation paper i've got loads of sheets somewhere but it's just big um really i got given a friend of mine who was an animator as well moved back to portugal and gave me a bag full of animation paper and i said to him wow. i'm going to draw a graphic novel on this one day and he's like yeah yeah and i have so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh i'm very proud of you right so he's very, now, he's very pleased <laughs> i know next thing obviously the barking wasn't the original title of the book was it you said they hinted at it before it was going to call it the black yes. dog wasn't it Yes. And I knew about the David Keane graphic novel, I've not got it. And yes. I also did, I, I also, my favourite band is called The Black Dog, though. It's a techno oh, band from Sheffield. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, I was coming, and then there was this whole, in the same time, this whole campaign came out, the whole Black Dog campaign with, um, like, Ruby Wax and other kind of mental health professionals. And, yeah, so, and there was a, I can't remember the name of the, author artist it's a children's book that came out called the black dog and it's something levi um and it's a 
it is you know a book about depression for kids and it's this like dog that grows in size and stuff yeah you're probably best changing the name there because the kids got all of this uh, <laughs> yeah i mean as soon as dave mckean did it it was like oh, i'm done <laughs> i love his work oh he's unbelievable you know his, his, his use of multimedia is just astonishing never ceases to die yeah yeah like he's I, an amazing creator i've got a ton good after some of his graphic novels he's done with neil gaiman each one of them is just a complete beast of a book and all together. Yeah, I mean, one of the ones that was really influential on Barking was one I've read like, a hundred times like, called Signal to Noise that he did oh, with, uh, yeah, yeah. with Neil Gaiman. Yeah, and it's yeah. astonishing because it's all set in someone's head and just how you could disappear into a mind and tell a story. And it's a, just a beautiful, wonderful book. I think he was one of my major influences growing up. I'm not, I'm not an artist. I, I can write, and really, I'm a good writer. Maybe Neil Gaiman, their early graphic novels like that one, and Violent Cases and stuff, and Mr. Punch. Yeah. They're just unbelievable works, and they, they seem to take what you can do with graphic novels forward, I think, a lot. And that's why a generation later, people like yourself can come along and do, not because you like David Keane, but you've, you've fallen, no, followed no. your own path. Yeah, I think so. And I think they really ch sort of changed the ideas of what something could look like. And I think what's wonderful with McKean is he's a, you know, it's, a, it's the line. He's got such a fine art line. It's a beautiful kind of ink work. And it's not about perfect realism. It's about the kind of impression or the feeling of a thing and how you can use your art to really get that across. And I think his work exemplifies that. It's just wonderful stuff. Yeah. What made you want to call the title Barking? I know there's an area in London called Barking, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. But obviously, you're not... looking at Barking, and is it two levels, this really, is it? Yeah, it was more like Barking Mad and then Barking because it was the dog. So, I mean, I sat down when I realised, when Dave McKean's book came out, and I went to the, the Paul Nash exhibition and got the book and, <laughs> and sat, sat in the um, Tate Britain reading it, oh. you know, having seen the exhibition and reading Dave McKean's and just go, God, I could change the name, what am I going to call it? And I just sat down and wrote every single slang word I could think of for mental illness. And when I finally came across Barking Mad, I was just like, oh, that's, you know, that's so What's obvious. <laughs> I know in the back of the hardback, I've got. Yes, so that's it. Those are the pages. I, yeah. I mean, it's very well worth seeing this, everyone, if you've got the book, because I know I saw the back of it. Yeah, uh, it's, the, it's the, the pages as you go in, so it's just my... Also, uh, the, yeah, as you go right. in and at the end of it as well, because it's the same one. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's unbelievable. It's just, it's almost like you've set the barrier there immediately. I mean, telling people, making them, you're making them realise what, what direction you're going with that, that front cage immediately. Yeah, I wanted to because I wanted to be. I wanted it to have it at the end as well to see if you saw that at the end, if it would change the way you looked at it, having read the book. That how flippant we use that kind of language, and I'm guilty of it myself. You know, saying, "Oh, that's just bonkers" or whatever, and not really taking into account like how that could impact on someone to be called that, or you know, it's it's a really language is so damaging. You know, and you've got to yeah. just keep it in mind all the time but i think as the society grows i think we've realized there's certain words that certainly like i'm not going to repeat them like i grew up in the 70s that you can't use nowadays because yeah all the, under, the undertones on it it's just not nice so yeah well i grew up in the 70s and my grandmother who lived with us when she wasn't in the hospital so she was sectioned she had um uh 
of paranoid schizophrenia, I think was her main diagnosis. Um, but she was literally the mad old Irish woman of Fulham, right? So we had the pub and she would go out walking and people would just be shouting stuff at her and whatnot and just laughing at her. And you just think that, you know, this poor damaged woman had to go through years of abuse. And I remember saying to my mum, you know, I should, my grandmother was really hard. She was a really difficult, not likable person. So it was, you know, easy for people to kind of go after her and take the mech and whatnot. But my, I remember saying to my mum, you know, I've been reading this research for Barking about people with oral hallucinations. And a lot of them have formed this uh, kind of AA group where they go off their medication and they meet and they have talking like underground kind of talking therapies called the hearing voices network and it's amazing amazing thing to have done and so many of them are finding that they're getting so much more um clarity and feeling so much better because they're talking openly about it and they have all found in general that there's a point of trauma in their lives that happened to trigger this oral hallucination and i mentioned this to my mum and i said you know i wonder what happened to my grandmother and whether there was like a thing that happened uh, beyond living through two world wars and all of the rest and she said that her I think it was the second world war her brother came home and, and gassed himself in her oven you know and, you, and she came home to find it one day and she was pregnant and she really had a couple of kids and you're just like well that would do it right I mean that would be enough to do anyone in and yeah. uh, and the fact that I didn't know that until sort of 30 years after her death and no one ever mentioned the stuff that happened to her. It was just always about her being cruel and mad and, you know, and I just, yeah. yeah. It, there's things you don't find out about your family sometimes, which you're not sure Because yeah. I'm diabetic and, and I got diabetes, what, pushing 10 years ago now. And I didn't, I knew when I got it, I half expected my dad's got it, but I didn't realise there was history traced on both sides of the family. And the, the family never told me. Yeah, they don't. And, you know, I think this is it. There's a lot of kind of mental health issues within my family, but they're all on my dad's side and people just didn't, didn't talk about it, you know, and I think it's a real problem because then when I'm in my twenties going through a thing, I don't know if I've got, you know, one of my aunts went through a similar thing or a cousin or my grandmother clearly went through that. And, you know, had people spoken about it, I might have felt a little less alone and a little less scared. And, you know, it's all that side of it. But those generations, they just buried everything down and pretended it wasn't happening, you know, or just shunned the person it was happening to. And it was a really, a really horrible thing to have survived. It must have been awful for... God, yeah, you don't want to think about people. it really. So, yeah, yeah. Lesson, in relation to barking itself, as I said, it's... Um, you need to afford your books now to finish for yourself. Do you look back at it now thinking, thank God that's done? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I keep referring to it as an exorcism because I feel like yeah. I really went, oh, here's, you know, here's this horrible dark time and maybe in talking about it, I, I can move on and you might be able to move on from it if it happened to you, or you might understand if you've dealt with someone who's been through something similar. But yeah, I do. It's, it, it was a really traumatic thing to actually draw and write in the end, because I had to be, when I realised the subjects I wanted to cover, I knew that I was going to have to dredge up some stuff 
that happened that I really didn't want to have to think about, but it was really important that I did. So I, there are still some spreads that I just, I, ca I can't even look at it. They give me the absolute horrors. To oh, understandable. Think, understandable. It had to go into the story and it was an important thing to mention. Um, but once it was out, yeah, it was, it was quite a relief, but getting it pen to paper was, yeah, it was a really intense experience. So. I know when I did my first, my first poetry book 10 years ago, it's, this relates to the same thing you're doing here, I think. It was like, at, by the end of it, I was just emotionally exhausted. And it was yeah. like, I told myself at the time, that's it. And yeah. not doing another one. Yeah. Never write another poem again. It didn't happen. <laughs> no, <laughs> it took, of course. Yeah. It took me five years to follow it up, so, but then it's been fairly plain sailing. But do you find yourself like, now that's out of the way, it's cleared, it's almost opened up the doors on it, what you want, and it's what you want to do next, I think. Yeah, completely. It's really exciting because it feels like I had to get that story out of my head to allow for kind of more fantastical ideas and more fun <laughs> ideas. And uh, I mean, I'm, I, I knew I'd need a break once I'd finished drawing it. So I put, it, put my name in the hat for a sci-fi comic to draw for this writer Fraser Campbell. And I'm doing that now. So we're doing oh. this. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Is that, really the, is that on the crowdfunding page one as well? I think it's going to be Kickstarts. Yeah, he's, uh, so Fraser kickstarts all his comics and he writes and then he works mainly with an artist called Ian Laurie. They're both based up in Scotland. And uh, then he, Fraser's been working with different artists and um, the original artist on this, on Index, Anna Redmond, she had to pull out. And uh, yeah, I put my name in and I knew I'd enjoy it. It's like a sci-fi kind of lo-fi and sci-fi story and it's yeah. all colour and I'm doing it all digitally and it's just a complete break <laughs> from what I was doing. Oh yeah. I mean, you do when artists like that you think you can get you can get right with the work of the right writer or something. You can have such yeah. a great buzz on it, can't you? So Yeah, it's really great. And then I, it gives me some headspace between the two before I go into my next my own next graphic novel idea. So that I can, I think it's like a palate cleanser almost, like in between the two. I get barking out, and then I can work on to my writing my next one as well. I think there always has to be a cleansing period, don't you mean? That's why I have to do it myself between my first and second book. And I needed yeah. a break, and it was just and then when I went to do the second book, it was completely different because I had a different yeah, palette wanted to explore. Yeah, it's really funny, isn't it? It feels like, I mean, I've only this is my first kind of big story out of my head and uh, it feels really like you have like a finite amount of space for a story and once you've made that space empty by getting it onto paper then another one just sort of like blossoms and blooms <laughs> in its place yeah no, definitely you know? no, and definitely. i had it already kind of branching my next one i'd been taking notes as i was working on barking and i could feel it was pushing one out you know, it's like one was coming in and the other yeah. one was going out. And yeah, it's a really well, interesting point. Hopefully it won't take you ten, hopefully this won't be 10 years then, basically, to do. No, it can't. It, it can't, luckily. Although it's a much bigger idea, so I don't know. <laughs> Let's hope not. Yeah, now, obviously, before we go then, obviously, we've touched on before, the last topic we'll touch on is, and is about your zines you've been working on, your, your feminist mm. zines. I know you were talking yeah. about them briefly before, so... Obviously, like they, like, I'd call them like little like chapbooks almost as poetry forms. But tell yeah. people about them then. Because I think people should be checking them out. Look, I've seen the bits of them online. Well, so they're, um, they're on my website. Uh, they are basically, I use them as kind of testing grounds for ideas. So I try to not spend more than one or two days per zine. 
and um, they're themed around my current work. So I've got one called One in Four Zines, which are about four mental health aspects, which I did with barking. And then my next idea is sort of about um, coercive relationships and women in sort of 60s, 70s environment. You know, it was quite, as you might remember in the 70s, growing up in a pub, we had kind of quite separate areas. So we had like a saloon bar and yeah. a, a wine bar sort of area. And just that kind of separation of men and women. And um, I found we, although the men were the ones that seemed like they were the ones to look out for, they were the danger. Actually, it was the kind of gossiping and the circles in, in the women that you had to be really careful, you know, it's like people were wary of the craze, but God forbid you cross their mother, you know, it's that sort of scenario that I'm interested in. So I started looking into kind of feminism and I was thinking a lot about sort of how that kind of develops and what that means. And I made a series of zines called How to Build a, Build a Feminist. Um, I was also working towards a, I do exhibitions with the zines in part of a group show. And we were doing one that year on uh, Women of the World Festival and Women of the World Day. So that was March. So it's just before lockdown. We did. We got that right then, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we just, the week before, got, a, got the exhibition in. But um, yeah, so there, each zine is based around a letter. And I just talk about a subject based around that letter that I think links to how I became a feminist thinker. And um, the letters, uh, can be put together into a sent into words and then that ultimately forms a sentence and each zine also then folds into that letter so there's instructions on the zine. Oh that's clever. Oh right. So, so like the first is F and F is for five and I talk about being five and the peanut vending paper. I don't know if you remember those in pubs but you vaguely, vaguely. <laughs> as a kid in a pub I came across them a lot and basically you take the pack of peanuts up and it would just like reveal a girl in a yes I do yes I do yeah I do there's a story behind that I'll tell you that for that one yes I do I've been really amused by the look on her face like it was like she never looked it was she was smiling but she never looked happy and it was like why is it a woman and it was sort of one of those early things I was kind of confronted with and you know we had strippers at the pub and you know there was I sort of came across quite a lot <laughs> at a young age that made Yeah, that. I came across. I had stories about that one as well. That's a story for another day, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and and that, that folds into an F. So yeah, ah. check it out. It's all on my all on my site. Yeah. And it's what we've looked at one certainly because it looks the stylistic differences are quite different between them and your novel graphic novel really, aren't they? So yeah. and I think you can see that it's a different side you've been projected in each of the two works there, certainly. I yeah. look forward to your, your, your forthcoming sci-fi comic, definitely. Now, Lucy, Thanks. if people want to find out more about you, where are the best double week? Uh, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all under at Lucy Sullivan UK. And my website is lucysullivanuk.com. So any of those, come find me, say hi. And uh, yeah, happy to chat. Brilliant, Lucy. That's all my questions for today. So hang around, a quick word to your mic. Thank you again. It's been, it's been a fascinating chat today. I really have enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. It's a pleasure. Take care. Okay. Take care, guys and girls. Stay safe and stay sane. Possible. I'll see you all soon. Bye. Spoken Label. Thanks again for listening to another session of Spoken Label. Our full archive can be found over on Bandcamp at Spoken Label. That's one word. 
spoken label full stop bandcamp.com and there is over 150 sessions there so I'm sure that if you've enjoyed this session there'll be something else there you can enjoy as well take care bye bye spoken label